0: Last night after I left the service, um, I walked over or drove over to Reeser's. It's a grocery store here and a whole bunch of beautiful fruit and walked up to this pile of apples and I, I noticed that one was, was bruised. And so I went over to it, gingerly picked it up and said, uh, who did this to you? That was a lie. Before I start, let me put, let me put Bobby, let me put you on the, on the spot. Come up here, buddy. This is Bobby Shuler. Some of you know his grandpa, Robert Shuler, uh, who used to uh, preach at the uh, sure. cathedral, right? And uh, he's now pastoring uh, the um, Hour uh, of Power, preaching that television thing. And in town because he's um, doing a wedding. But he's a graduate from ORU, so he's one of ours, right? And so just say hello to us. Okay, fine. Yeah. Okay, hi, everyone. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see Blake Bartell. Amen. So I went to 180, uh, and, also, and then went to Believer's Church for a while. Sweet. Uh, I used to work there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, i love it here. Happy to meet you guys. Good, good. Let's pre- you know what I wanted to do though, really to say to you is... Aren't you delighted when God has his hand on a whole family? And really, what I wanted to say to you is we love what your family stood for. And we appreciate you saying yes to Jesus and following in that thing. So thanks, man. Sure. grace to you. Okay. We don't usually do that kind of thing, but I am so delighted that uh, generations matter. Amen? We're pretty excited about 2015. I mean, I was kind of depressed when um, we were talking, when we finally decided, and we were chatting with Blaine and Lori, and they decided to be, abandon us in the midst of the cold. <laughs> yeah. But no, we're excited for them. They're, most of you know that they're starting a new community in Tulsa, and we're excited for that, going to be a part of that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, as we're moving forward, we're thinking through, okay, what do you have for us, Lord, in 2015? And, and we did a couple of things. One is Shelby Swanson, some of you that no, in the children's area, no Shelby. She's stepping in full time. Uh, her, hu- her husband, Jason, plays uh, sometimes here and is a guitarist, great guitarist. But what we're hoping is to up our effectiveness with kids. We think the kids need to be pastored and cared for, and uh, we just have to keep asking more questions in that regard, so we're happy that that's going on. Be praying for that if you would. We're also uh, happy Paul Pano uh, is stepping up into some of the places, part-time, that uh, Blaine was responsible for, but some other areas. Paul, stand up. Uh, his wife... <laughs> His wife, Lissa. We're we're just trying to figure out how to better serve the sanctuary community. And um, we really are trusting God this year for clarity, for his voice to be lifted. Mm -hmm. We're in the season of epiphany. And big word, but all it simply means is it celebrates the idea that God wants to make himself known to us and to bring us light about himself, this is good news because, generally speaking, God kind of dwells in obscurity. Have you noticed that? That oftentimes He is quiet, silent. I grew up in a tradition that we always thought God wanted to be, da 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 da. I wanted to be out in the open and miracles constantly, and we would pray all the time for more miracles, more miracles, and we would sing and worship and stay, you know, singing for forty-five minutes and sing it one more time just to hope to get that. Glory flowing. And, and, and I'll never forget the day that it dawned on me that, that yes, there are times God does come out in strength, but there most of the time God dwells in silence and tucks his very power and his very life into our lives, sometimes in imperceivable ways. There's a text that few people talk about, but it's right in the heart of the scripture, Isaiah 45, verse 15. And Isaiah says this, truly, You are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Listen to it again. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. What if that's true? The story of Luke 24 that we celebrate when we talk about resurrection and Jesus is resurrected in power. He's conquered death. And yet as he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the scripture says he prevented them from recognizing him. Why would he do that? What if God does that a lot in our lives? That he literally tucks his very nature and power into our lives. And what if, what if that's a bit of a miracle? I mean, how God is pretty fat, Right? Fat with power, fat with whatever he is. He's, he's certainly not, you wouldn't think of God as tiny when he's omnipotent. And yet, how can an omnipotent God be in your life and you not be just overwhelmed by it? It's a miracle. That God can be silently present and thus not be completely overwhelmed. Um, all the people of faith know this on some intuitive level, that God hides and that he's often quiet. There's a text in Hebrew that talks about faith. It says, now faith is being sure of what? Of what we hope for. And, which is a little uncertain. And certain of what? Of things we don't see. So faith basically gives a little bit of sureness to a hope. That's not very sure. And, and certainty of something we really can't see. What, I'm, what I think he suggested is that faith is sketchy with a, st- a tad of certainty. More than it's certainty with a tad of sketch, right? On some level, this thing we're part of is a little bit hard faith. Blaise Pascal, who was a guy that lived in the 17th century, he was a brilliant scientist and mathematician, philosopher, and and a bit of a theologian, and he wrote something brilliant. Listen to it. If God had wished to overcome the obstinacy of, a, of the most hardened, hardened to God. He could have done so, overcome their obstinacy. He could have done so by revealing himself to them so plainly that they could not doubt the truth of his essence. But he chooses to be recognized only by those who sincerely sought him. He says there's just enough light for those who desire to see but enough darkness for those who are of a contrary disposition. So what he's saying is, God has evidence in our lives and in the world of his presence, but it's just enough evidence for people who are interested that they can actually come to him. But it's just enough uh, enough opaqueness, enough darkness, that if people don't want to seek him, they can become convinced that he doesn't exist. God set it up this way. The season of epiphany celebrates that even though that's generally true, there are times when God makes himself more obvious, where the light becomes a bit more difficult to ignore, where God makes himself known, where he sort of appears in our lives. We have uh, seven grandbabies. And um, they're all pretty little. And there's one stage in the baby's life that when you play peekaboo with them, they're pretty pretty engaged in that. They think it's cool, right? So you hide behind a wall, and they go peekaboo, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you know, they like that kind of thing. That doesn't work when they're 15, but it works at a period of time. <laughs> or you go behind a chair, you know, peekaboo, and, and you capture them. See, I think, in uh, some way, Epiphany's a kind of God peekaboo. It's when he kind of just. All of a sudden, he shows up and goes, whoa, I think I just saw God. I think think that was God. I was just out and uh, had a -a peekaboo moment this past week in San Diego. I went to a private retreat uh, where I went. It was a Catholic monastery, and I had a spiritual director, and it was really quite sweet. I I was scheduled to go to Chicago first, and then I stopped and thought, wait a minute, Chicago in January or San Diego in January? And I, I really felt like the Lord spoke to me. So I went to San Diego, and uh, it was beautiful every day. You know, just another day in paradise. But um, uh, 75 degrees, I was sitting out there. But but one of the things that was happening was this spiritual director was inviting me into silence and reflection. Things that my mind and personality just do not orient very well to. Because silence feels a lot like boredom. And uh, that kind of thing. And so I was doing some of the practices to sort of get past my own head and sort of get into a place of awe and reverence. And so I'm sitting out in the, um, in the courtyard of the, of the monastery. And I was there for several hours, and at some point in there as I was just adoring, I had gotten quiet in my head. At least my head wasn't dominating the deal. And I was in a kind of moment of um, reverence, that I had this moment of clarity. Something it was like, it was like, I don't know quite how to describe it other than it was just a moment, but it was a moment that had residual lingering and it was so cool. It was so settling. It communicated such peace and a kind of confidence to my soul that really kind of retuned. It was like the reason I was there for the whole week that I was there for the whole four or five days that I was there. This is epiphany. It's it's this kind of thing that God does when he sort of manifests his life. In fact, the actual word uh, epiphany is derived from a Greek word which means manifestation. It means to appear. In the context of faith, it's a term that describes the appearance of the invisible being, uh, being in some perceptible form. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate epiphany because he's God enfleshed. There are three events in the life of Jesus that are specifically cited by the church historically uh, about how epiphany works, how God reveals his reality to his people. The first one you you could guess is is the story we've just celebrated uh, through Christmas is the story of the Magi. This is where these, these people are led by a star of all things from the east, they're not Jews, and they're led by a star to come to face Jesus Christ. We'll read that story just in a moment and make a couple of reflections on it. The second story is the baptism of Jesus and how when he, you remember the story as he goes to be baptized by John and as he goes into the water, the heavens open. The, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him in some way that's perceptible to people around him and a voice comes out of heaven and God's peek speaks out and, and people hear him. This is my son. In whom, please, that's the celebration of that event. is the celebration of Epiphany. And then the third one is what Dr. Green talked about last week, the wedding at Cana. And that's when Jesus does this miracle of turning water into wine to manifest or epiphany his glory. So let's just reflect for just a moment on this Magi story. Before I do that, let me give you a historical sidebar, not because you're interested, but because I am. (laughs) Um, Christians have been celebrating uh, the season of Epiphany since the late second century. They actually were celebrating it before they had decided, as the church universal, had decided what day they were going to celebrate Christmas. They determined Epiphany before they determined the date they were celebrate Christmas. And it was January 6th. Epiphany is actually a public holiday uh, in many countries. And it's not only a day now, it actually has been extended into being a kind of season of celebration, which we're in. In the Czech Republic and Slovakia, kids uh, on Epiphany dress up Uh, as three kings and uh, they visit their uh, uh, houses in their neighborhoods and they take their roles as kings or wise men and they basically, when they come to the door, they sing stories about Jesus' birth and they give homage to the king of kings and then people respond by rewarding them with treats. It's kind of their uh, Halloween version, right? (laughs) Version of Halloween. Uh, In many Latin American countries, it's the three wise men, not Santa Claus, who bring the gifts for them. And so they actually write letters, the kids write letters to the wise men telling them how good they were and basically what gifts they want. On Epiphany, Eve, which is January 5th, children in Spain fill their shoes with straw or grain and they put them out on their balconies and put them out in their door, doorways, uh, porches. And they leave them there overnight to, to provide food for the camels of the wise men. Right? And so what happens is the parents, after they go to bed, change out the, the, uh, the stuff in their shoes with treats and with gifts. So that's what they do there. Um, this first event in connection with Epiphany that we mentioned, this Magi event, let me read it to you. This is out of Matthew 2. Of course, we don't have it on there, so you'll have to listen really well. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, these guys from the east, Came to Jerusalem. And they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Very curious idea here, that they were from the East. They're not Jews. They're from they're basically from a pagan world. And they somehow have picked up the idea that um, there is a king coming to the Jews. And so uh, then they say, We saw his star in the East, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod heard this and he was disturbed with all Jerusalem with him. Now King Herod, if you know anything about him historically, he was not a very nice guy. Uh, He actually murdered his own family because he thought they might be interested in his, his position. So he, you know, King is disturbed about this. He's hearing about the King of Israel. He's the King of Israel, right? And so Uh, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem of Judah, in Judah, Judea rather, they responded, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, and he will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now unlike many politicians today, Herod was a liar. <laughs> he wasn't intending to go and worship Jesus. In fact, if you know the rest of the story, after the Magi took off, he actually murdered every child that would have been within that window of that star's appearance. Right? So he was an evil guy. And they heard that the king, uh, and after, after they heard the king and they went their way, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. Whatever was going on there, we don't know. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Notice that they didn't come to a manger. This was probably a year or longer after Jesus was born. They're coming to the child in a house, right? And uh, they opened their treasures and they presented him. Oh, excuse me. They said they bowed down and worshipped him. This is so interesting. Because the first ones to worship Jesus are not... Jews they are pagans the first ones to give him gifts and sacrifice are not Jews, they're pagans they bring Gold and incense and myrrh, and having been warned by a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. There's a bunch of odd in this story to the modern mind particularly. But but think of this aspect, the idea that these Magi are not Jews. Scholars speculate they were probably uh, these uh, Persian, Zoroastrian priests, pagan to the core, and yet God shows up in their lives. In their paganness. (laughs) And he speaks to them. He brings a star to capture their attention. I mean, these Zoroastrian Astrian priests, they used to watch the planets and the stars and watch how they aligned because they were trying to figure out the future. They were stargazers. And, and remembers stargazing for signs of the future was forbidden to the Jews. They weren't supposed to do that. In fact, if they did that, if you got caught doing that, you'd get in real big trouble. They would throw stones at you, too. you died. And here's an example of that, Jeremiah 10. Hear what the Lord says to you people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs that are in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. So you're not supposed to be led by stars. You're supposed to be led by me is what God tells them to his own people. And here's God, though, making himself known to these magi in ways they can understand in a way that he actually forbid his own people to look at. Why is that okay? Why would he do that? No idea. The the, the general observation uh, that goes against what some of us think is that when you read the Bible... There's going to be times you read things you don't quite get that make you a little confused. If everything in the Bible makes sense to you, you are in trouble. I was, reading, I was listening to this guy preaching last week, and uh, he, in the middle of his message, he said, you need to wrestle with the word of God because it is God's word, and you need to wrestle it until you understand it. He said, if you have to punch it, punch it until you understand, until it makes sense to you. I remember thinking to myself when I listened, I thought, it's bad advice. (laughs) Because I think that some of us just can't stand the notion of inconsistency or contradiction in Scripture. We think the reasoning is if the Bible's inerrant, if the Bible's infallible, then how can there be inconsistency? How can there be contradictions? But what if God wants there to be inconsistencies and contradictions precisely to show that the human life is... In participation with the divine and if there's anything you get when humans get involved is inconsistency and contradiction I mean just listen to a whole bunch of preachers about any one given subject and you'll hear inconsistency and contradiction when I listen to myself (laughs) and what I say there's within one message there's inconsistency and contradiction think about marriage Right? And you're getting to know this man or getting to know this woman. I think men are, I don't know, we're pretty simple, it seems. W- women are more complicated, right? And, and when, I, when I think about me, the, the whole woman is, is like a wonder. What's going on? I, I, don't know, I don't know. I wonder why she said that. <laughs> Mystery. <laughs> I tell Gail, you know, we've been married for 38 years, and I don't really have a clue. <laughs> Right? She's at least 15 different people. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean that in a weird way. That's, that's, that's bad, in it? That was bad. Can we come in this week? Can you give us about six days? This week? <laughs> but the reality is whenever human beings get involved in life, Or with God, there's going to be inconsistencies. There's going to be contradictions. I mean, just read the various resurrection narratives. And you read them, and it's all true that Jesus rose. I mean, you get that point. Jesus rose from the dead. But the timelines and the events that take place is just different. So, you know, you can try to make that all, punch it until it all fits, or you can just go, wow. Right? There's just different people telling the story. There's a famous story of Jesus making a whip out of some cords, and, he, and then he's found going through the temple overturning tables and money changers in Jerusalem. And in Matthew and Mark, they put that story at the beginning, I mean, at the end of his ministry, right before he starts his passion. In the book of John, John puts it before, at the very beginning of his ministry. So I've heard pastors wrestle over this. Well, what do you think that is? Well, it's gotta be, they both have to be true. It's the word of God, it's inerrant. Right? It's gotta be true. So they punch it until they say, "Well, the event happened twice." Even though John doesn't mention a second event, Matthew and Mark don't mention two events. It has to be two events because they're trying to make it all work. I was saying to myself, "Why do that?" Maybe they just are remembering it differently. They're humans. Well, it's divine. Well, absolutely. Aren't you glad God uses humans? See, that doesn't freak me out because I think on some level that, that one of our problems is that we're modern scientific technological people that thinks everything has to fit. We've got to just punch things, manipulate them until they all make sense. But I think what we lose when we do that is the sense of wonder and mystery and the human dimension with God jumping into our midst it's true that there's a long history of people trying to resolve all inconsistencies and all contradictions found when you find them in sacred texts. And if one of these people, you're not alone by any means. I mean, there's in the second century, there's this guy named Tatian who read the four gospels and it bothered him because there's different kinds of ways that things are said and the way the timelines, it didn't all work. And so he wanted to condense them all. And so he did a project called the Diatessaron. And in this project, he put all of the gospels together, along with some other traditions he knew, and put them all in one narrative, thinking that would make the most sense for the church. But the church said no. I mean, there was a few churches that adopted it, but the church in general said, "No, we want to hear these different voices. We want to hear the way the story' is told in different ways, because we think God is in diversity." And they loved the diversity, it made them wonder, it fostered mystery. I love that. so in this magi narrative god is seen as a god who makes himself known to a people who aren't even close to believing things right and he speaks to them a way that he told his own people don't be looking for me to speak that way and yet he does and he just i think he makes the rules i think he can bend them right and i i remember when i first saw the star i think all of us have star stories when I first encountered the Christ, it wasn't in church. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong things. And yet God who doesn't go those places was at that place. It was on a Christmas night at a party with a bunch of kids. And, and we were all crazy and uh, doing the things we weren't supposed to be doing. And yet my friend walks up to me in the middle of that thing. And he said to me, he was the guy that sold me the good marijuana. And uh, <laughs> he, he came up to me and, and he told me, he said, listen. He said, I'm thinking about giving my life to Jesus. And I remember how that just shone like a star in my sky. No, he didn't explain it. I didn't even ask him what he meant. I didn't know what he meant. But it was like, pow! And all that night as I was hanging around, laughing, joking, smoking. Um, and, 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 you know, I was of the grand old age of 14 years old. It was Christmas, 1970. Somebody took me home, and I'm walking up the stairs. I am loaded, and um, as I'm walking up the stairs, I kept thinking, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. Nobody talked to me other than that statement. And the further I got up the stairs, the more prevailing that scent it seemed, and I seemed like I was stepping into some kind of an awesome something. And I walked over to my bed, and I knelt down, and I was brought up Roman Catholic, and so I opened the prayer this way. Mary, Joseph, Joseph, Michael, the archangel. And as I'm praying, I didn't know what to say. As I'm just praying, I felt like God came into my room. And I remember instantly I was no effect of the night, no effect of the marijuana, nothing. I was just just completely me, which kind of shocked me. And... Not only that, all of a sudden I started feeling very dirty. Not like rejection dirty, not like get out of here, you filthy person, but just dirty, but welcome, but dirty. And I remember thinking, I said, Jesus, would, would you clean me? I just felt like I was an old garbage can that was getting sprayed out with something. And in that moment, my life was completely transformed. But I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong things, praying the wrong prayer. think God was there. See, what's beautiful about Epiphany and about God is that you don't have to be right. And you don't have to say it right. And this morning, you might be in a place where you're just not in the right place. Your head's not right. You're desiring wrong things. You know you are. You're in trouble. But listen, God's right where you are. The star is shining right where you are. You don't have to get yourself right to hear from God. That's what Epiphany celebrates. Now, here's an interesting idea that you should I think we should consider. What if God is reaching out to everyone in all places, at all times, every nation, the deepest, darkest jungles, the coolest cities? What if God is always speaking to people? What if stars are always shining? It's just that most people aren't aware of it. What if most people just don't recognize it? What would that mean for us in terms of our dealing with people and trying to encourage faith? There's a story in Acts 14 that's very provocative to this end. And it's a story about Paul in this place called Lystra. And he's praying for this guy. And the scripture says in Lystra, this guy was crippled at his feet and he was lame from birth. Everybody knew him, it was a little town. And he had never walked. So he's listening to Paul as he's talking, and Paul looked right at him, and he perceived that he had faith to be healed, and so he called out to the guy, hey, stand up on your feet, and at that, the guy jumps up and begins to walk, which freaked everybody out, right? It's a miracle, and the scripture says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they began to freak out. They began to shout in their language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Okay, I'll think about this a minute a legitimate miracle from God that they co-opt into a wrong pagan story. It's a legitimate miracle. God rose the guy up, he's healed, and they said, the gods have come among us. And so what ends up happening is uh, Barnabas they call Zeus, the god Zeus, Paul, they call Hermes. They think he's come down in physical form because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, caught wind of it. So he brings these bulls and these wreaths to the city gates. And he wanted the, the, the crowd to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were gods. I mean, the place is going crazy. God's done a miracle, but it's Zeus, they think. It's Hermes, they think. They're willing to sacrifice to these false God's over a miracle God Almighty has done. But when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard this, they just tore their clothes and they rushed into the crowd. Like, oh, no, wait, 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 guys, why are you doing this? We're only people. We're human like you and we're bringing you good news. Notice they didn't say, You filthy pagans. God does something and what do you do with it? You stink it up with your filthy demon religion. That's more evangelical. <laughs> We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from this worthless things that don't really work to the living God. Let me straighten out what happened here. This not what you think. We're people like you. We're not gods. We're talking about the living God did this, who made heaven and earth and see, and everything in them. In the past, he let the nations go their own way, but even though that's true, he has not left himself without testimony. What's he saying? Even though you guys have always mixed up everything God has done, he still has a voice in your culture. Even when you're saying, praise Zeus over what God has done. Praise Hermes over what your creator has produced. He still relentlessly speaks to you. And cares for you. He has not left himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness to you guys. By giving you rain from heaven. And crops in their seasons. You sacrifice to Zeus. And you think Zeus is being kind to you this season. That's why you have a bountiful crop. It was never Zeus. It was always the living God. And he provides you with plenty of foods. And listen to this. He fills your hearts with joy. So you know how you love it when you're with your friends and you're laughing? That's God giving you that capacity. You know how it is when you fall in love and you're excited about what a life might be with this person in your life, and you go to the place where you make vows to That's God gave you that joy. Do you know what it's like when you hold a new baby in your hands and you're excited that this is a child as a result of your love? That joy that fills your that's God who gave you that joy. Those of you who, even though you thought it was the gods, God still was doing this in your life. See, they were crediting their goodness to to the pagan gods when they had rain, when they had good crops, when they had plenty of food, when they had joy in their heart. They were saying, praise Zeus, praise Hermes, and offering sacrifices to them. And what did God do? He kept giving them rain, kept giving them crops, kept giving them plenty of food and kept letting them experience joy. Why? Cuz God is recklessly and incautiously in love with people. When he talked to his disciples, Jesus he said to them, you want to be like your father? Then be kind to people who are not kind to you. Love not those people that can do for you, but the people that refuse to love you back. Your enemies. Love <laughs> them. He said, for your father sends rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you want to be like God, be reckless and incautious in celebrating and loving people. Most people of faith don't want to go where Paul goes. We would much rather stand and judge people. And see them as different than us. This us-them thing. It, it works in a couple of ways. One, it, it helps us feel more together because we've identified an enemy. So we feel more connected with each other because now we've found a them. It also works because somehow we want to be superior sometimes and we like to judge people. We want to create that kind of sense, that kind of separation. And we want to see them as unsaved and us as saved. We want to see them as sons of Satan, daughters of Satan, which might be what they are. But how should we respond to that, right? How do we still face that? Somehow uh, the reality is that we assume when we use those kinds of labels that God is not involved with their lives at all. I mean, in my way of thinking, for years as a young person, I used to think that I used to get mad when I saw sinners who were happy. I think, they're not really happy. They don't have Jesus in their hearts. How can they be happy? The only people that are happy are people like me. Except Christ and be like me. When somebody would have a happy marriage, I think it was a devil happiness. So the devil's giving them happiness. Right? Because how can God be at work in their lives? They're not right. How can God be at work in their lives? They're not doing, they don't believe the right stuff. And yet Paul is claiming God is always speaking in every life. And what he was doing in the good news was saying, you guys don't see it, but when you see it, it even gets sweeter. That's the gospel. It's not to bring God on the scene. It's to bring light to the God who's already on the scene. Paul claims that God gives and speaks and loves people that have no clue that it's God. Most people don't seem to catch the stars that God puts in their lives. They seem to look at that and say, well, I've just got, they look at the goodness in their lives and say, well, I'm pretty lucky. Or they say, you know, I got some good karma at work here. Or they say, you know, it's a result of good hard work. Or they say, you know, this is the 200th time I've been reincarnated and I just get better at it. And Paul claims that all the good people experience, saint or otherwise, is, being, is the result of a God who cares. And my question to us would be, how would that change how we treat people if we actually dared to believe that? If we thought this, God is working everywhere in the lives of every person. You might start looking at the people we cross paths with, paths with more with wonder instead of judgment. We might ask questions like, well, I wonder what God's doing in his life. Or I wonder what God is speaking to her. Where's the star in her life? Is she even aware of it? See, I think we'd probably be less like Judge Judy, who's just simply trying to assess and judge people. And more like Sherlock Holmes, who's always looking for clues. And we'd be looking for clues in the lives of people that we cross paths with. What is God doing? And then encouraging them to be stargazers and star chasers of a God who's speaking. I remember when I first started thinking about this back in the 80s, when I first got being challenged by, I think, the Holy Spirit in these kinds of thoughts, is I was a uh, Protestant preacher in a predominantly uh, Roman Catholic town. About 80% of the town was Roman Catholic. And I was a Pentecostal, charismatic, uh, you know, preacher. And I felt God sent me to Marshfield, Wisconsin, a town of 18,000 people, to convert the town. I figured I could pull it off in about two years. I'm not kidding you. I was going to reach the world by the weekend, right? So I had to at least reach Marshfield in two years. So we went house to house. We went on the streets. We did all this stuff. We did advertising for God. We just, and I couldn't believe how cold they were to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel just resistant. I used to think, why are they so resistant? And I remember a couple of years into this process of pastoring in this little town, and I heard about an event that the Roman Catholics were putting on. It was a Roman Catholic healing revival, which sounded kind of, you know, odd to me. How are they going to do that, right? And so I went, you know, more out of curiosity. And so I went, and I walk in, and I'm thinking there might be 20 people there. Walked in, there's 8,000 There's only 18,000 people in this town. There's 8,000 people at this event. I was shocked. And the guy standing up front in this huge auditorium was a Roman Catholic monk. And he had the whole monk stuff on and huge uh, um, rosary, like a softball-sized rosary. And uh, huge crucifix. And, uh, you know, he's preaching. And what was so odd is when he was preaching, he sounded just like a... It was that a 10 revival or something? I mean, he was saying, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to surrender. You need to open up and turn from what things that are distracting you, just preaching away. And then every once in a while he'd stop and then he'd start speaking in tongues. I'm not kidding you. I'm going looking at these Catholics just completely wide-eyed looking, and they were not resistant at all. And at one point, he had them all stand up, and he had them raise their hands, and he said, call on Jesus. And he led them in a prayer, and they're all crying, Jesus, come into our lives. We renounce the plans of Satan. I mean, they're just going after it. And I'm watching these Catholics, and it dawned on me. Roman Catholics aren't against Jesus. They're not against the gospel. So all this resistance... They were against me. (laughs) It's true. They just thought I was weird. (laughs) So all of this that I've spiritualized is just because of me. See, the real problem was is that the gospel was being hindered, hindered by me. I wonder if that's still true for the world around us. What if people aren't against Jesus? Jesus, when he hung all the sinners, came and hung with him. Why would they do that? I don't think he thought, sinner, take that. Holy, unholy. I don't think he did those juxtapositions. I think what he thought was, you're someone who's loved. God has invested himself in you. He's speaking to you. And somehow the sinners were drawn to Jesus. I think that the problem in our culture is not the gospel and it's not Jesus. It's you. It's me. I think the reason the gospel isn't more touching more lives is because the church is the way she is. And I think one of the central reasons is because of this issue. Uh, So after that happened to me, there was this little kid, teenager I met, and I'd met a number of Catholics from then. My whole ministry and thought of ministry to to everybody changed, began to change. And I ran to this Catholic kid, and uh, instead of asking him, well, have you accepted Jesus Christ your poor Instead of going down that trail and giving him the four spiritual loss, I just would ask, say, where, what do, you, you a, do you have any faith or have any religious life? And he said, well, I'm going to Mass. And I said, well, how are you doing? How is your relationship with God doing? He kind of looked at me kind of weird. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, are you growing in your faith? He said, well, I don't know. I said, okay, ask a question. You go up every service for Mass. You go up and you receive Eucharist. So you're receiving Jesus. In your heart, I said, do you ever really think about that? I mean, do you ever really focus on that and open your heart to that? And he said, actually, I never have. I said, why don't you do that? And then, you know, because we run into people all the time in a little town. I said, the next time we run into each other, I said, tell me what happens. So I saw him a couple weeks later. His face was all lit up. He came to me. He said, oh my goodness. He said, I went forward in mass. I thought about what we said. And he said, I, I just opened my heart. And as I took the, the bread, he said, somehow I saw Jesus coming into my life. He says, I am not kidding you. He said, my life is changing. It's amazing. Thank you. See, uh, there's another guy that you've heard this story before, most of you you that have been around me, because I usually tell stories from my life, and since my life is fairly limited, I have the same stories. (laughs) Now, I've been tempted, oftentimes, to tell you stories that are not true, (laughs) because it would make me more interesting, but then I would be a liar, like the story I opened with about the apple. It was a lie. (laughs) Right? Right? So I can keep doing that, but, you know, the bottom line is I'm not going to do that, so it means you get bored, so just please do this. When you hear it, pretend you never heard it and go, oh, that's an amazing story. Okay, so <laughs> I meet this guy. He's a, he's a physician in our town. There's Marshfield, Wisconsin is known for this huge clinic. There are about 800 doctors in a town of 18,000 people. It's a tiny town. But people come from all over the place. And so one of the doctors, a, neuroscience, a neurosurgeon, was, uh, I had talked to, his wife came to church, she didn't come to church, He did not believe in God, he was an agnostic, he said. So I'm having a conversation with him, we're talking about God, and he said, he said, well, I just don't believe. I said, you know, Doc, I said, I think God is in your life. He's moving in your life, you just don't see it. He laughed at me, he said, what are you talking about? I said, isn't there any place in your life where you have a sense of of experiencing some kind of transcendence? I mean, you know, like, like, like when you fell in love with your wife, that it was something more than what it was, or maybe you first held your first baby, and you're kind of there was maybe a moment of transcendence. I mean, is there anything like that, that ever happens in your life? He thought for a minute, and he said, well, sometimes when I go hiking, I love the outdoors. He said, I'll come to a stream, or I'll come to a mountainous area or a scene. And he said, there's something that kind of grasps me that seems like it's bigger than that. It seems transcendent. He said, that's just nature. I said, no, I said, what if that's Jesus? He got laughed. He giggled at me. I said, listen, so next time when you go hiking, whenever that happens again, if you even remember this conversation, now as I said that in the back of my mind, I was thinking, Holy Spirit, get him. Because after we're done talking, the Holy Spirit stays with them. (laughs) You know, kind of. Anyway, it's like the like those like you know when the when the they put on ducks, they put little tracers, you know, and then they go into the wild, they're still traced, you know. (laughs) So whenever you talk to people about God, God tags them. (laughs) But anyway, so I I, (laughs) so he 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 wrote me in about three months. I got a letter from him. This was back in the days when people wrote letters, and um, got this letter, and it said, Ed. I uh, went out hiking the other day with some of my friends and we were in the mountains in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. He said, and I was walking ahead and I came around this bend and I saw this amazing scene, a valley up high. And he said, I was struck. It was like a palpable peace that struck me. And he said, I remembered our conversation. And so he said, when, when it happened, I'm in front of them so I kind of you know, put my head down a little bit and I said, uh, are you Jesus? And he said, "He said, "Yes, I am. What do I do now?" <laughs> See, God was already speaking to him, an agnostic. He was always moving in his life all the time an agnostic. He just didn't know it. What if the gospel is more a decoder ring to help people find a God who's already speaking in their lives? How would that change the way that you deal? With people. And then finally, what if he's still speaking to you? Hebrews said he's a God that still speaks. What if he's speaking to you right now? Some of you that maybe think, I haven't heard God's voice in forever. What if he really is speaking? But we need to pray for more sensitivity to that. More discernment to that. I'm, I told you, the guy that loves God to speak Big. I, I love stories like Elijah who, who goes in front of the prophets of Baal and, and they're all trying to bring this fire down and this sacrifice that the god Baal would bring a manifestation of power and J- Elijah the whole day that they're doing that is mocking them saying, what's wrong with your god? Is he going to the bathroom? As it literally says that. And then... After they're all done doing that, the scripture says "God that he took water, Elijah, and poured water over the sacrifice, made it hard to burn. And in one moment, the fire of God comes down and wipes out the total sacrifice and licks up the fire, the water that was in all the, 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 the trenches around the sacrifice. And then Elijah takes the sword and kills all those prophets. We're talking about fire and kicking some bottom. man. That sounds like the glory cloud to me. Right? Winning big for God in power. Sean That's what I'm used to. I mean, that's what I grew up in always seeking. But just a couple of days later, Elijah's out, and he's seeking the voice of God, and the voice of God doesn't seem to come. Silence. All of a sudden, an earthquake But then the scripture says God's not in the earthquake. He wasn't in it. There was this fire that raged all around Elijah, but the scripture says God wasn't in the fire. And then there was this tornadic wind that shot all around, blasting rocks apart. And the scripture says God wasn't in the wind. And then all of a sudden it says there was a sense of a still, small voice. Something easy to miss when you're looking only for violent, powerful stuff. And Elijah knew that was God. See, I think a lot of times God is speaking to us. We want him to speak in some big way, in some emotional way, in some powerful way. But what if God speaks mostly or in seasons, I think, like the church is in, where he speaks so quietly, most of us miss it. So we have to pray for discernment. 2015, maybe we can pray for a little more discernment. We're about ready to go into Lent. What if our goal is, God, help us discern your voice? Where am I at? You're in my life. Even though I know I'm not in the right place, you're still in the places that aren't right. If I'm not believing everything right, you're still in the places where people don't believe rightly. You're always speaking. Why don't you stand with me? Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.